The Founders Live Podcast tells unique and inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from all over the world. Be sure to join thousands of entrepreneurs on founderslive.com. Now, quick word from our sponsors before we get started. Hey everyone, Nick here real quick to share with you a few new things that are happening in Founders Live that you need to know about. Uh, check out our new global community, The Arena. You can find it at arena.founderslive.com. You can find a number of new channels to connect with others, find exclusive content, and really learn how to be a world-class entrepreneur. Within that, you can find our uh, new levels of value of membership within Founders Live. We have the Insider Membership and the Professional. The Founders Live Insider Membership, you can you know, really be on the inside, find all that great new content and, and really have awesome experiences. And then the professional, uh, you can really, really grow. So these are the people that really want to grow as an entrepreneur. You're out there. You want to maximize your startup and business success. Um, and this is including the recently launched Founders Live Academy that has courses, trainings, and awesome content to help you become the best entrepreneur that you can. And lastly, check out our events. Um, there should be things happening around you as well as if you want to launch Founders Live in your city, just reach out to us at expand.founderslive.com. All right, everyone. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Founders Live podcast, where we tell unique and inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from all over the world. I am Nick Hughes. I'm the founder and CEO of Founders Live. And today, we have a special guest, uh, someone that is uh, originally from Wisconsin. Uh, we have John Denbauer. He is a TEDx speaker, author, startup founder, and um, actually background in uh, clinical psychology and sports neuropsychologist, all this great stuff. We're going to talk about um, his projects, his journey through entrepreneurship, even going into, you know, sports psychology, high performance, mental edge, all this stuff. Hey, we, John, uh, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, hey, um, you know, you're, uh, you're calling in here and, you know, um, for the listeners here, I, you know, y'all know I'm, from the United States, uh, we we are headquartered in Seattle, and you know, at times I'm I'm there, and at times I'm traveling around the world. And today, I I am actually joining in from uh, Manila in the Philippines, which is a new place for me to visit in our, in my travels for Founders Live and for business. So that's where I'm at. Where are you, John? I'm actually in Wisconsin. Yeah, so enjoying the summer in Wisconsin right now. Um, how how's the weather? Is it getting better now? It is, yeah. Really, really nice weather. Um, beautiful summer weather. It's been a little warm for us, but uh, that's okay. Um, yeah, not too warm, and um, everybody's enjoying being out at the lakes and having picnics outside and just generally enjoying the summer. That's great. Well, you know, we're going to get into some really interesting conversations around um, really, you know, your experience um, going from more of a uh, clinical uh, neuropsychologist to a startup founder, which uh, <laughs> I'm sure that there's some 
interesting overlap and lessons. But um, first and foremost, uh, let's hear a little bit of your background and, you know, catch us up to speed with, um, you know, your, your, a bit of your journey here. Yeah, I, um, I started, um, I got my undergrad in psychology, my master's in clinical psychology, my uh, PhD in clinical psychology, and uh, then went on to do a specialization in neuropsychology um, and um, practiced as a neuropsychologist for a while, particularly in the area of early stage dementia detection and mitigation, and then essentially founded a company um, that uh, helped identify and mitigate dementia using a variety of non-pharmaceutical methodologies and um, had uh, sold that in 2019. And then doing other, just doing some consulting and other things in that space, including um, sports psychology and sports neuropsychology consulting, which is another, another interest and love of mine. Yeah. What, what drew you to entrepreneurship? I'd love to ask that question of why, why entrepreneurship? Why do your own thing? You know, um, clinical psychologists are generally not entrepreneurs. So you know, it's slight of, it's a bit of a different, uh, interestingly different path. So what made you kind of make that jump or see that you want to go in and start your own company? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's difficult to fully inaccurately answer that question. I think, you know, I felt compelled to from a personal perspective, but also from a bit of a spiritual perspective. Um, and then I, I, I really, I think approach, um, approach entrepreneurship, in business, quote unquote, in general, from very much a clinician standpoint. So I was, um, you know, assessing and treating my patients. Um, well, I wasn't actually doing a lot of treating because there wasn't a treatment, but I was doing a lot of assessment and I was getting, you know, obviously frustrated and I noticed a pretty significant clinical need in the area of early stage detection of dementia and early stage intervention. And I just really felt like compelled um, to do it. Um, I, I tend to view things, um, at least I've been told, I tend to view things in a way that's, um, can be, I think described as myopic or overly simplistic. And I tend to see like a problem, a clinical problem or a problem in life. And I tend to think, okay, well, you know, I need to find a solution. Whereas others, I think, or some others see the challenges in the more realistic portrayal of like, yeah, we can't, solve the problem of dementia. Um, I just sort of see the problem and attempt, um, in a, you know, very bullheaded way to go about trying to do what I can to try to impact it. Um, and you know, I necessarily almost always fall short, but, um, you know, I, um, you know, I, I try to give a super, super perhaps unrealistic effort in, um, in getting there. So, um, I think that was, um, probably the impetus is just seeing so many people that I was, um, that I knew personally, but, um, the, you know, the people that, uh, clients of mine, hundreds of clients of mine, uh, if not more than a thousand, uh, that were affected by dementia and were given very little information and resources and very little proper, um, proper intervention, um, possibilities. Mm. Well, what did you learn through that process? And I'm, I'm actually really pointing at the 
in in the in the world and direction of dementia, which you know, almost incurable disease in some ways, or it's a frontier that we still are trying to figure out. Um, how? What did you learn when you're kind of fighting a battle that is almost unwinnable? Yeah, it really is truly an unwinnable battle. Um, if winning is defined as curing, um, it really is an unwinnable battle. Um, you know, I found that I think, and I, you know, it's, this is, you know, well known in other areas, but, um, in public health, it doesn't seem to be, um, something we think about a lot is, you know, how we frame the problem is really highly, how we define and frame the problem is highly determinant of how we, how we feel about it and how we then begin to approach it both from a medical standpoint, but from a societal standpoint. And dementia has been really framed in a very inaccurate and misleading and incorrect way, which is, um, hey, you know, this is something that sort of just happens as we get old. It's a, you know, it's a totally, um, it's a disease that we really can't do anything about. We really don't know too much about it. And, um, you know, the best we can do is hope and pray that we don't get it. And, um you know, maybe that's kind of the general thought process still. And that process really hasn't changed um, for the last 100 years. Um, when you think of how crazy that is, you know, you think about any other disease, major disease, pandemic level disease, you know, our thought process and our intervention alternatives have, have really changed a lot. Um, if you look at mm -hmm. breast cancer or prostate cancer or drug use or alcohol use or nicotine use or whatever, you know, whatever you would define, you know, these things have all been addressed as major public health concerns. And, um, and then we've, you know, slowly, very slowly, but we've changed our thinking and then, you know, changed our, our conception of, we can't do anything about it to, we can do something about it and we have to do something about it. And here's what we can do as a society. And here's what we can do as individuals. And dementia really hasn't caught up with that. And that to me was always, it has always been the biggest stumbling block in anything is that the majority of the public, the overwhelming majority doesn't, isn't aware that dementia is not just something that happens as you get old, that it's a separate disease, just like any other disease. And it's as ludicrous to say that this is just something that happens as, as you get old, as it would be to say, you know, hey, cancer is just something that you get. You can't do anything about it. Um, you know, and so I, that, I think changing people's perception of that to me is really my number one mission. And then in a more individual clinical standpoint, um, you know, then it's more, Hey, what actually can we do to mitigate the disease? Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, um, I'm sure it was a, a very special learning experience. And, uh, you, you know, you saw a lot of angles of the, you know, the disease that you weren't aware of that now you have a better appreciation for, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I, I, I sort of perhaps naively or definitely naively thought, you know, the real problem here is education. If we just made people aware that there are things that they can do and actually those things are covered by their Medicare or, you know, they don't even have to go to a gym. They don't even have to go to a practitioner. They just need to keep their brain and body active in the right ways that majority of people would, would do it. 
Um, and I thought, you know, it's hard enough just getting the education out there. Um, and we still haven't educated 99.9% of the, the world um, public. But, um, you know, it was always a bit disheartening and always continues to be a, dis, a bit disheartening that when you um, educate people, you know, the majority of humans um, don't, um, you know, do what's best for them from a healthcare perspective. Um, at least I shouldn't say so globally. Um, they tend not to do simple things that they know they should do. For example, like flossing, you know, I know I should floss for 25 years. The dentist has told me I need to be flossing regularly. I do it occasionally, but I still don't do it in the way that I know I should. And I think partly, um, it's, you know, the reason for that is because I don't feel the immediate threat of what happens if I don't floss, nothing ever terrible has happened to me uh, for not flossing yet. Um, but, um, what will happen to me probably is something that might happen in 10 to 15, 20 years. And dementia is very similar to that. Um, it's just this inevitable thing that we, um, that we're, that we look at, we try to, you know, try to work on, try to get better at, you know, and, um, yeah. you know, getting, you know, one thing is the insight. It's very similar to, you know, to psychotherapy you know, or to behavior change, you know, the first thing is education. The second thing is self insight. The third thing is then, all right, like, how do we help divide, help provide the mechanisms to help funnel and reinforce social change. Um, and, um, it, you know, it's a, that's a very, it requires a major, you know, community, um, involvement, uh, to make these things happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you also were a part of uh, a Netflix documentary called This Is Dementia. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about how that how that came together and what, what was the uh, what was the fundamental idea surrounding that? Um, hmm, yeah. So, how, I mean, how it came together extremely organically, I think. Uh, well, it's kind of a longer backstory that, that is really sort of more the our story of my story of founding our company um, and, you know, developing, um, uh, getting into entrepreneurship, but basically from a very long story short, I was, um, you know, starting the company. I had been a couple of sort of a year, year and a half into it. So very early and, you know, people, um, you know, I didn't have any business experience, certainly no advertising or PR experience, no media experience at all. And, um, some, you know, patients would come to me or usually it was, um, uh, cause my patients were elderly and had early stage or mid-stage dementia, like their sons and daughters. And they'd be like, wow, this is re really revolutionary. Like, um, this is a, you know, this is a, uh, everybody should know about this. Everybody should know about this idea. Um, and then they'd see me speak somewhere. And as my talks got larger, people more people come up to me or email or call me or something and say hey like more people need to know about this and i was sort of in the mindset of um you know attraction rather than promotion and i just kept on doing what i was doing but it turned out that a member of our um he's since passed away but a member of our initial board of three people that were really just people that i was meeting with um, that had a lot of um, business experience. Um, and I was just, you know, having breakfast with them and picking them from ideas. 
he is um he just casually mentioned i don't know we were talking something he was like hey you know more people need to know about this he said i should introduce you to my um to my daughter and she works at netflix and i said oh that yeah you're fine that'd be great and i um, didn't think much of it but it turned out that she was the senior content um manager at netflix um she's somewhere else and has been for the last five or six years but basically she got um she you know we talked and she was actually like surprisingly really interested and then it just happened from there that just the way that most of these things happen right like you know you someone knows someone you get introduced they're like hey this is really interesting and um you know hey everyone that that's that is the way that business works so uh lesson there is um you know be open to these introductions and kind of keep your eyes and ears open yeah absolutely i think you know one of the things that um somebody had said to me at one point early um is like you know don't say no very often at the beginning and then you can start saying no a lot more often as you get um you know get going and i just sort of thought about that and uh, and i'm not a person that naturally says no to opportunities like i am really interested in always meeting different types of people or going different places so that's sort of a natural uh, win for me and if i hadn't been like that i don't think i would have started something up in this manner um so yeah i was just i was anybody if anybody said to me hey i know this person or whatever um i would just say yes i'd love to connect with them and i always get back to them and no matter how many people call their email that i always get back to them thank them and um you know just kind of if nothing else it built i think it built some goodwill and it made me feel good about myself um because you know it's always kind of disheartening when somebody does a talk or something and you're interested and they say hey yes please email me i answer my email and then they never do that's always a little disheartening to me so i i promised myself i'd never do that yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the same way. And, it, uh, you know, sometimes I think if you have a standard that you hold yourself to, uh, it's hard to hold other people to that because maybe that's not the way they operate. Um, but I, I actually share the same, you know, the same view of, um, you know, getting back to people. And I'm curious your thought on this is as you uh, more speaking engagements, more opportunities as things grew. Um, were you still able to get back to everyone or, you know, like at some point it gets a little overwhelming. So how did you, how did you scale yourself when you have that standard? I mean, I definitely would say I did get back to everybody, but in my opinion, it was insane. Like, um, it was insane. You know, I would not recommend it to anybody. Um, I just, you know, sort of, a um, you know, uh, for me, the things that, you know, have made me, I guess, quote unquote, successful are also the things that are, can be when, when really taken, when not regulated well from a personal perspective can get very unhealthy. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I felt and still feel that this is a spiritual, you know, mission for me, but at the same time, um, I feel like, um, um, so I do feel compelled, um, to get back to people because I do think that there's a, you know, like, uh, some sort of karma associated with that, 
But whereas others would say, hey, you know, like you don't need to get back to everybody tonight. Um, you know, I feel like I don't, um, I just don't want to let anybody down. And I've learned to sort of regulate that a bit more. But, it, you know, I did get back to everybody and I still sort of do. Um, but it comes, you know, it, when I, it does get overwhelming and it does come at a cost for sure. Like, you know, when you're in a, yeah. trying to take a vacation or you're trying to hang out with your family and you're feel compelled to do that, then, then that's, then to me, it's, <laughs> it's like, that's crossed a boundary. So, um, and also I feel like, um, you know, like most founders right there, people found things because they're hopefully passionate from a, just a very personal um, aspect. And for me, you know, I started this in my whole mission has been, you know, my grandmother who helped raise me a very influential figure um, was diagnosed with um, early stage dementia. And there was a, you know, long story that's detailed in the book and the, and the um, documentary, but basically, you know, we really couldn't do anything for her in that personal experience while I was going through medical school, um, at the tail end of things, uh, residency, um, really was just very poignant to me and still is. And so, you know, I feel when I, you know, interact with anybody in this area, um, almost everybody has a personal story and they feel compelled to share it. And I can understand why and it's great, but if, you know, every time they do, I don't get I haven't gotten numb to it at all ever. In fact, in some ways I've gotten more sensitive to it. So it just becomes emotionally overwhelming because you, you know, you go to, you know, you do a talk for 500 people and, you know, everybody in the audience raises their hand. They've had somebody that they know personally or close to them that have, has died um, with dementia and it's been incredibly difficult. And then you go to China and you do a talk for 20,000 people and, you know, 20,000 people raise their hands. Um, and so it's like, wow, this is, um, you know, to me, it would be akin to being like a cancer doctor and do a talk on cancer and say, Hey, like how many people are, have been affected by cancer, totally untreated and you, and they died from it and have a hundred percent of the audience raise their hand. It's, um, it's like, it's just, it's too big of a problem to me still to not, try to do everything I can to, um, to help, help it. But I have, you know, since I had my, I had a child who's three years old now. And so since that happened, that sort of put my priorities a bit more in order in that regard. And so I've learned to regulate it a bit more, but, um, that is something about me that it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I commend you for, you know, um, diving into this area and we need, we need more, more like you and, um, you know, focused on, Hey, I mean, you know, putting an end to it, but well, at least, at least making efforts of improvements and, uh, un, you know, uncovering new things, discoveries and all that. So I uh, thank you for that. Um, I do want to actually shift a bit. Uh, this is another interesting area that you've spent some time on. Um, so as a sports, uh, psychologist and neuropsychologist, maybe detail out a little bit of your study in your area. And then I, I actually want to, sh- I want to get a little more thoughts around high performance because I believe that does flow into what we do as entrepreneurs, but um, you know, talk to us a little bit about, you know, sports psychology. 
Yeah. So, I mean, my background is I did a lot of sports when I was younger. Um, from a sports psychology perspective, what I did is, um, you know, I was always interested in how, as a kid, before there was such a thing as sports psychology, I was always really interested in, you know, uh, peak performance when there, I didn't even know the term, you know, how I could get every advantage that I could possibly. And so I really worked, you know, in that particular area to try to, um, you know, as I got older, I kept playing sports. I played tennis in college at a fairly high level um, and played semi-professionally a little bit um, and um, just got super interested in, um, you know, how to improve performance or just maybe how to improve balance in elite athletes lives and um you know again i think it came from you know having a personal experience of you know definitely getting you know at times way too intense about sports and losing perspective on it and then you know getting burnt out um uh in doing it and losing the love for it and then finding the love again for things like tennis um in my life and um, seeing that happen so often in other athletes too so, you know, that was a big thing for me. And um, so, you know, that was, a, I guess, a major galvanizing uh, moment. And so when I started studying the brain more, I thought, you know, this is something I really love to do. And as, as you know, I like a little variety in my, my professional life and personal life. So I started getting into working with ball sport athletes and helping uh, eventually ball sport athletes um, recognize um a visual object, a ball, like a baseball or a tennis ball or a hockey puck, um, helped, uh, helping their brain recognize that object, um, you know, earlier, um, so they can obviously react, um, faster. So that area of sports neuropsychology is an area that, um, I've done consultation with uh, a lot of baseball players and, um, professional tennis players and that's an area that i still do consultation with i still do the traditional sports psychology stuff but i um i kind of there's a fair amount of sports psychologists out there and there's many good ones so the way i sort of differentiate myself is um to try to um be the only person that does um what i just described yeah well and what's happening you know, obviously, a when you say a ball athlete, someone either tennis ball, baseball, coming at you 100 plus miles an hour, um, it's an absolute, you know, there, there, there is a, a skill and a talent and actually a psychology that's required. What I want to make the connection with here is with peak performance and high performance entrepreneurship, is not in the moment there's a hundred mile an hour fastball coming at you. But when you look across like more of a longitude, there is a way that what I'm trying to say is there's like this, like push hard, push hard, but there is this like pullback of a psychological evaluation and keeping things in perspective and then balancing, I don't like to use the term work-life balance. I don't think that, that it's not 50-50, all that stuff. But mm. how, how, how do you, how would you map those two? If you take someone, because our audience, people listening here are founders, they're entrepreneurs, 
And the fact is you cannot, which I've experienced in some ways, you cannot be all in all the time. You know, how, how does one maintain peak performance, but keep a perspective on their life and actually the big picture so that they can optimize what they're doing versus burnout? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the number you, you think you said a lot of really astute things there. Um, the, um, I think the number one, and these are all lessons that I sort of learned the hard way personally, um, in entrepreneurship and founding a company is that, you know, everybody has their own set point, right? Like everybody has their own baseline where you feel comfortable or I feel comfortable or maybe not comfortable, but we're able to regulate ourselves and regulate our lives in a fair you know, a fairly, a fairly accurate way or, you know, a fairly healthy way. And so my set point may be higher than yours or lower than yours. You know, it also depends on our age and our life circumstances. You know, I'm 44 now. That's my set point is way different than it was when I was 34, when I was 32, when I founded the company, like my set point there is I was, you know, um, I was single, um, you know, I could, I had more bandwidth to work and I'm all, I also had, you know, a little less, a little more energy in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and now it's different. So, you know, founders are not obviously created equal, um, in the sense, well, that's just that we're, we're not all the same, I guess, you know, yeah. people that are older or younger or have different energy levels, you know, so a big part of that is self insight, you know, what, is my energy level. When do I work best in the day? Um, when do I not work best? You know, some people get really resentful working on weekends. Other people like working on weekends. And I didn't know that stuff about myself because I had never really thought of it. You know, I never really, really, you know, met with anybody or balanced anything off a psychologist or somebody to understand how do I work best? You know, like we, a lot of us, you know, all of us work, a lot of us work a lot. Um, but it's really interesting to think like a lot of us don't spend a lot of time thinking, how do we work and learn best? Not just like most effectively or efficiently, but like best within our lives. So I think that's like number one is, you know, meeting with therapists and really beginning to understand that most people learn these things as I did the hard way is like, you know, they burn themselves out a bunch of times and then they are like, all right, I can't do that again. And then they do it again. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, then they, then they, you know, they get burned enough and have enough pain and then they start changing. So, you know, I think that's one of that self-insight is really a big factor. Like, you know, if I were to start a company up again, I started a not-for-profit a couple of years ago and it went so much smoother than the first time around, not just because I knew stuff, but because I knew myself more and I was able to regulate my own stuff. I was like, I'm not going off at six o'clock pretty much each night. Now, if I need to do more, I get up at four in the morning and that's when I work best because I'm older now. Um, so having that self insight and then another big thing, I think, especially in the day of social media, you know, entrepreneurship probably in some respect has always been um, seen as like sexing at some level. And I remember getting into it when I was just, you know, banging out a bunch of clinical work, which was definitely unsexy. Um, you know, when I got into it, it was fun because I, um, you know, I could go to um, events at night, interact with a bunch of people. And that was all really good stuff. Um, got mm. to meet a bunch of people. And the people were like, for lack of a better term, people in the founder spaces 
in entrepreneurship are typically really cool people. Like they're um, dynamic, they're smart, they come from all works of life, they're diverse, they travel. Um, they're just the kind of people, for me at least, I'd love to hang out and have beer with. Um, so yeah. that was really alluring. Um, but I had to, you know, what I didn't realize, because that was, that was my first time in entrepreneurship, is that everybody had as much or more insecurity as I did. And, every, and everybody else had as much or more failure as I did. Like, it was super surprising to me when I first found out after being in that area for like five years that a lot of the companies were not making money. They were not profitable. Mm-hmm. And then somebody said like, Hey, that's actually like normal. Like for most companies that are starting out, they don't turn start turning gross profit until like year two or three, depending on the industry and stuff. But I never knew that. So I was like, Oh man, all the people at these events, they must be like making tons of money and making <laughs> high amount of gross profit. Like I'm such a loser. Um, so I think the thing to also remember is like, so, you know, sharing your vulnerabilities, it helps you get better. Like, um, yep, for me, yep. like I, I was like, well, I couldn't tell anybody that we were, we were almost broke all the time. Um, and like, you know, you know, using our own credit cards to pay for stuff. And then when I started just offhandedly telling people that people were like, oh yeah, that everybody's doing that right now. Like, not to say that that's the right thing, but like, we're all sort of in that position until people make it. And then it's sort of, when I started sharing that, then other people were like, oh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, Because I thought you guys were doing perfect, you know? So it's sort of like the same thing we have in life, right? We spend a lot of time and energy, and I still do this, you know, trying to cover our insecurities. And that sort of isolates us from the other people that could help us. Um, so in the last, you know, six or seven years, there's been all this great research on vulnerability and Brene Brown has been like a big figure in that. So just this, this huge aspect of like be vulnerable with the right people and be truthful and honest and um, transparent with your, you know, your mentors, because, you know, they can't help you, you know, like anybody, they can't help you if they don't know the entire truth. So and usually the truth is not near as bad as you think it is. Um, you know, they'll usually tell you like, yeah, you know, I burned and crashed and burned my first couple of companies and then, you know, learned and did things better. So we were, we got lucky a lot of the time. And then we also had really, really good mentors, but things definitely changed for the positive when I started being like a hundred percent honest with all my insecurities as a founder, as a CEO, et cetera. Cause then, you know, nine 99% of people were super helpful and like it relaxed them into their, into being more vulnerable with me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for, you know, saying that because, um, Hey, we're, you know, y'all listening here, you heard it. And I'll even reiterate that, um, you know, a lot, if not almost all, you know, people, we're, we're still just trying to figure it out. All right. You know, uh, no one knows really what they're doing. No one knows the next steps. And that's just kind of the dirty little secret. And the beauty of entrepreneurship is in some ways 
it is very much like surfing where you are or even art right you're you're creating in the moment you're you're shifting as the tide and the water shift and and that's a skill that's a skill but the fact is that a lot of people feel like what john just said and a lot of people maybe would are are insecure and and you know i think what you just said man is like the moment you take that down and you just say you know what like I'm just going to be myself. I'm going to be who I am. And I'm going to be honest. The thing is you remove those as weaknesses. You just, they, they become less potent and now you can actually live your life and now you can actually build your company and you're not hiding anything and you're not, you know, and I, I struggle with this stuff sometimes too, you know, so don't worry everyone. And, you know, I think we all are just going through this. So I appreciate you saying that and you know the lesson here is just uh you know um obviously you don't need to shout it from the top of the buildings but know who to you know uh share this information with and that's why there's things like founders live that's why there's there's you know founder groups that are more trusting and intimate like in terms of there's certain groups that you actually share this information with and your support group uh, that would actually really, really help with this perspective. So I, I think it's a tremendously important that, that we follow what John just said. Yeah. And also I would say, you know, like, um, you know, the emotional aspect in just getting help, the aspect, but also, you know, is, is companies grow and scale and become more successful. You get more investors. And even on your first investor, you know, you have an ethical requirement, but also a legal requirement, a very serious legal requirement to be entirely honest and transparent with the status of the company operationally and yeah. financially. And so when you start giving, you know, balance sheets and start giving quarterly reports and start giving monthly reports to investors, you know, the first you know, couple are going to be your friends and family. They're not going to know how to read that stuff typically. Nor are they really caring. They're just throwing their money at you and they're kind of pretending, well, you know, it's going to, you know, probably not going to see this again. But then you start getting more major money. And then pretty soon, if that goes well, you start getting some really serious stuff. And then, you know, within a year or two, you know, you got to fill out a 256 page document on diligence requirements for a VC or something like that. And so it's sort of that, that process of being entirely honest and transparent and like not leaving up things out. So that rigorous honesty piece, like that's a great, um, like pattern habit to fall into because what will happen is, you know, over time, somebody inevitably will come back to you and be like, well, you didn't tell me that this, you know, this was happening. You didn't tell me that it was, uh, you know, we were surprised. I was always surprised when investors, you know, that I wouldn't think of would be like, well, you didn't tell me that your operation, you know, your operational manager in this area is on maternity or paternity leave or something, you know, like I was like, well, I didn't really think that that was necessary, but you know, (laughs) the more money people give you typically when they give you significant amounts of money, you know, they, they feel obligated and they should feel obligated to ask you any question they want regarding the status of the company. So, you know, it just gets, it just gets more rigorous, you know, as you kind of move up in levels. Yeah. And, and 
if if that's if that's your vision everyone i mean if that's what you all want then then awesome just be aware of it and and if if you hear that and you're like you know what i i, I don't want to deal with that then then that's great too and you know you're kind of starting to see that path you know form and come together yeah yeah i think that's an important point too and that i forgot to mention so i'm glad you brought it up is like you you know setting a vision for your company like it you know, it's very easy to, you know, to go to these events and you're like the people that are win the awards, the people that are the most quote unquote successful are the people that got the most money, got the most investment, have the most profit in their company or the most revenue or scale that an IPO did or something, right? Like that is the kind of the microculture of those, that sort of beginning stage of entrepreneurship, but it mm-hmm. need not be yours, like, right. you know, like I realized um, at some point when I sold my company that my vision was was actually, um, you know, to do a more non-for-profit endeavor to try to increase education and awareness. Um, and then, you know, we hired a CEO that had more of a bent on, you know, um, really scaling the company from a profitability standpoint. But it's like, you know, when you look at you know, general society, I'm sure the message continues to be, you know, the most, you know, the most profitable, the better. Yeah. 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 Again, just, um, just everyone, you know, look at that vision, understand where you want to go. That's for maybe a a different podcast, but you know, John, um, this has been, uh, an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Um, where, uh, let's let's uh, run through these real quick. In terms of the yeah. book, um, what what's the what's the name of the book? Where can people find more information on this on on your book? Yeah, the book is called also called "This Is Dementia." Um, it's available, I believe. The majority of publishers have it. Um, Barnes and Noble carries it, I think, still. Although Barnes and Noble has sort of dwindled a bit, um, Amazon has it. Um, so you can order it off of Amazon um, and published by Friesen Press. And then another publisher took it on too. So that is um, uh, that is um, the book. And then the documentaries on all the major streaming platforms, to my knowledge, um, with the exception of potentially Hulu. And, um, and then we have some websites too, um, that this is dementia.com and johnjenbor.com. Great. Um, well, John, um, so great to have you on today and, and share this. And um, everyone, I encu- we encourage you to check out those um, you know websites, uh, the documentary, and do your research. And hey, if people want to reach out to you, uh, should they just? Uh, is there a way on the website they can they can maybe uh, reach out? Yeah, they can reach out on the website or honestly, you can just call me. I usually just give out my number very freely because I the my, one of my favorite things to do is to next to speaking to patients is to speak to entrepreneurs. So the easiest thing to do is call me or text me. Um, I usually like if you text me, I usually just call you back because I just like talking, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> my number is uh, 602-510-510. 9217. It's a 602-510-9217. And feel free to share with anybody if I can be of help. Um, I love connecting people with people. That's like my, one of my favorite things to do in life. Awesome. 
Well, I think you might you might be the first guest that has given out their their actual cell phone number yeah. on, on on the show. So yeah, nobody. So. Yeah, everybody tells me not to do it, and I always am like, nah. It's always it's never not worked out well for me. So <laughs> yeah, well, so good, um, John. Thank you so much. Um, this is uh, this has been an incredible conversation, and so everyone. Um, make sure you check out those resources, um, take John up on his offers and, um, so much good stuff there. So this has been the founders live podcast where we tell unique and inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from all over the world today, you know, really hearing an incredible journey and story as well as, um, interesting and very valuable tips around, um, you know, psychology and even, you know, peak performance and in, in, in your areas of life. So, um, so great there. Hey, we, we release new episodes pretty much every week. Uh, so new, new things come down the line, make sure you continue to keep your eye out for those. Um, you know, feel free to, you know, uh, give us comments or ratings on your favorite listening platform. Um, we have a lot of events coming down the line, um, center stage events for founders live our city events around the world. Um, our primetime events are starting. It's coming together here soon for the end of the year. We're excited about that. And lastly, everyone, hey, just uh, stay healthy and stay safe.